Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. This week we're sharing our community connection show with you, which is where Denise and I read stories and questions that you all have sent in to us. And it's just a great way for all of us to hear from listeners and to talk about some different touch points that we don't always get to. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the first question, if that's all right with you, Denise. Sounds great. Okay, we'll dive in. I am an empath, but I never wanted to accept that side. I always attempted to turn it off, even as a child. As you can imagine, I never learned to control it properly. I can walk up to a closed door and tell you if someone is in there and what their state of mind is. I can walk into a home someone has passed in and tell you where that person spent most of their time. I have a hard time being around people with strong personalities. My little brother is one of those. My problem is I don't believe in an afterlife. I'm someone who has to feel it and see it to believe. Do you happen to know where a person like me could find some resources of scientific research? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I think I do, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, one book I would highly recommend that this listener check out is called Suddenly Psychic, A Skeptic's Journey. It's written by Maureen Caudill, and it's about a computer scientist named Maureen who was totally into the physics and science and proof and was definitely a skeptic. And then she had this experience that changed her life and made her realize that she was psychic. And so it's one of the go-to books recommended for skeptics. The other book I would recommend is called Phenomenon by Annie Jacobson. The full title is Phenomena, the Secret History of the U.S. Government's Investigations into Extrasensory Perception and Psychokinesis. This book really has tons and tons and tons of declassified documents that show that the government really did hire, train, and use spies, psychic spies, during the Cold War. But it also shows you what these intuitives could do. It goes into fascinating remote viewers, people who can move objects with their minds, and she has all the documentation to prove everything that she's saying. And finally, I would recommend that she read near-death experience books. There are so many out there. Uh, PMH Atwater has some great ones, but there's wonderful ones out there. There's a couple of doctors who are now writing books just on NDEs. And so when you read those stories, I think it definitely shows you some common links between all of these different people and starts to help you see that the afterlife is truly real. Do you have anything you'd add to that? Well, there's the documentary on Netflix right now, Third Eye Spies, which was based on uh, the information of exactly what you just said with the remote viewing pro that was two physicists that worked through this uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there's a lot of a scientific background with that. Also, it's not really science-based, but it's kind of hard to dispute is David Kessler's book, Oh, what is the name of it with crowded rooms? Visions, trips, and crowded rooms. Right, which has documented over and over and over what people are seeing when they're passing. So, And that goes across demographics and religious beliefs and everything else. So it's not really the scientific background, but it, I think it's a good resource and just to open that door a little bit. Yeah, that's a great one because it's divided up into what doctors witnessed from their patients passing, seeing as they were dying, nurses, 
hospice workers, and then family members. And we have to mention Dr. Raymond Moody, of course, too. Yes. Okay. Okay. The next one. Hi, Samantha and Denise. I had an interesting experience the other day, and I wanted to know your thoughts. I was in an antique store with my boyfriend, and I was feeling very relaxed and excited since I enjoy history, and I find old items and stories fascinating. He and I were the only ones in the store besides the people that worked there. I was in an area with some old books and was flipping through one, and all of a sudden I felt very hot and claustrophobic. I typically don't get claustrophobic. I have no problem with elevators and things like that, and I'm almost never hot without a reason. And I had this feeling of I have to get out of here. So I walked outside and felt better. I've been in antique stores in the past and never had a problem. It felt like I was surrounded by a bunch of people all yelling things at me. But it was the feeling of being crowded. I couldn't see anything or hear anything, but that feeling that you feel when people are in your space and all shouting at once is what it felt like. So I was just curious if this is something that's common for empaths and antique stores. I've had an experience in the past where I've held an item that belonged to someone and could describe details of their kitchen without ever having been there. This was a bit of a mind-blowing experience, but this felt different. I ground and protect myself before going into Walmart, but it never occurred to me that it would be necessary to do it before going into an empty antique store. Any insight would be appreciated. Well, everything holds energy, uh, especially things that are... Antique stores, and I've shared this before, I used to love flea markets, thrift stores, antique stores. Now I have to be really careful with that. And what she described is um, psychometry, is when you pick up an object and you can read the energy of where it's been or who it belonged to. So I do personally think that as empaths, we do have to be really selective. And I have had that feeling before of all of a sudden, I have to get out of here. This doesn't feel right. Um, but as far as places and property and items holding energy, as empaths, I think that's something we need to be really cautious and, and just aware of. I agree. Yeah, I don't frequent antique stores anymore because of that. If you, I mean, I can go into them, but she's right, you're right, you have to ground and shield yourself before going in. And so she might have just been holding an object that had a lot of negative energy, but it sounds like she went in there pretty open and was picking up on the energy of all the items because mm -hmm. she felt so crowded and like, I, I can't do this. And so just know that that's a sign that you are intuitive and it's a sign that one of your skills might be psychometry, right? which also means that you can pick up energy when you're touching people. So if you shake hands or if you're getting a manicure or a massage, you might be picking up on their energy as well. So it's just a good thing to know so that you can go throughout your day more grounded. Okay, our next question says, I really appreciated your awesome podcast with Dr. Les Carter. Even though I feel I know a lot about narcissists, I still learned even more from that episode. Well, thank you. I, I love Dr. Carter too. That is the topic of my question as well. I'm in a pretty complicated situation. Narcissists keep showing up in my life. I grew up with a brother who was one and have dated many in my life. Not just narcissists, but those on the spectrum into sociopath and psychopath. The last person I dated was one of the worst, and I'm still feeling repercussions from it. I brought him into my spiritual community, and when I realized who and what he was, I wanted nothing to do with him. When he realized I had changed my mind about him and was on to him, I watched him manipulate and be incredibly fake and nice to many of the unsuspecting people in the group, 
and in their innocence, they, accept, they accepted him for who he was. I feel like no one would believe me if I told them who he really was, especially since spiritual communities tend to be loving and welcoming to all. I struggle with how much to say to those I watch and manipulate. It is really hard to sit by and watch this happen and not say anything, all the while knowing he is doing a lot of this to prevent me from being integrated into a group that was once a big part of my life. Because of him, I've had to take a big step back and remove myself from this community, and it has been a big loss for me. Well, that is so sad, and that is something that narcissists are really good at doing. They're good at charming people and using that charm to isolate you from a group that has brought you comfort. I don't know that you can raise the warning flag because sometimes people see what they want to see. And if he's putting the charm on to the you know, upmax of his, of his abilities, then there might not be a whole lot you can do. I would say to send that spiritual community light, love, and protection and keep them in your prayers. I would also say to surround him in pink light energy to kind of soften any negative intentions he might be harboring. And I would recommend that you be patient because narcissists cannot wear that mask for long. And before you know it, I think the people in that group will see him for what he is and you'll be able to rejoin them. Don't you agree? I, I do agree. And I agree with her point that it's not a common thing discussed in spiritual communities or woo-woo places or yoga studios or metaphysical group, but it's personal opinion. It's becoming more and more prevalent with people. And she puts that beautifully of they're drawing off the light of the people in the group. And that makes it sound like an us and them. And I don't mean it that way, but I do think I agree with you entirely. And similar to what Dr. Carter said is they can only keep up the charade so long, but this is also ostracizing her from her group where she's felt community, where she's felt welcome. And that's a very painful, lonely thing because you want people to see and I think she's concerned for the people in the group that they're going to be duped as well. Yeah. And we have gotten a lot of questions about narcissists in spiritual communities. And I do think people need to be aware that not all individuals who claim they are spiritual are who they say they are. There are a lot of narcissists in these communities and you need to be aware and watch out and try to avoid them. So if you're going to a spiritual intuitive teacher for help and guidance, and he or she says something like, only I know how to teach this, or I'm not going to give you that information until you take these three courses, or this is the only way to do this. Those types of things that insinuate that they have higher, special, unique power, I think that's a big warning flag, and you should avoid those teachers. I agree. I agree completely. Ready for the next one? Yes. Okay. Hi, ladies. I absolutely love your podcast. Well, thank you. The other day, I had a dream visitation from my grandpa. We were sitting at a table looking at photos of me when I was around six or seven. When I woke up, I found it kind of odd that my sister wasn't in any of the photos, but I've been doing a lot of shadow work on my body image issues, so I chalked it up to I need to love myself like I did when I was a child. Today I listened to the astrology forecast episode. She was talking about the eclipse coming up in July. So this is past, but I thought back to what was happening in my life. I'm 26, so nothing stood out until she said the date, July 2000. 
My sister was born July 18th, 2000. I thought, holy shit, my grandpa came to me showing pictures right before my sister, who is the most wonderful sister anyone could ask for, was born, which was a hard time for me because I didn't like sharing, and it upended my little life. This eclipse season has been bringing up issues around working with others at work, and I just got married. His family is very hard to be around. I just wanted to say thank you for that podcast because otherwise I would never have connected the dream visitation to the eclipse and working on these issues. Keep sharing y'all's light. And I think that that's a really good point is that things will come up in a dream and we might think, oh, that was so nice. I saw my grandfather. But usually there's a message when there's a visitation. And sometimes when I dream about people that I love who have passed, I I worry that it's a warning, that something bad is going to happen or they're trying to give me a heads up. Do you ever get that feeling? Oh, yeah, I do. I always worry that too. But I think you're right. It's usually just a message that's bringing us some insight into some prayer stuff we've been working on. Right. I just think, too, paying attention to how the the eclipses or the full moons or the new moons or energetically, and again, I don't know if this is for everyone, I feel like we're all becoming a little more sensitive to those nuances of these energies. And if you get comfort or you get solace or you get direction by paying attention to those patterns, it's, it's a really helpful tool. It really is. And this is another good reminder to write down your dreams and write down all the details because she didn't connect that dream until several weeks later. So luckily she remembered it. But sometimes, you know, life gets busy and we forget a dream or we forget certain details from it. And then we can look back and glean the nuggets that are in there for us. And it's just another comforting reminder that our grandparents, our friends, loved ones, aunts, uncles on the other side, they're watching out for us and they know what's going on. And a lot of times if we miss it in the first dream, it will come back in symbolism and following dreams until we figure it out. Yes. Very good point. Okay. Our next question says, hello, Denise and Samantha. I had a question about an experience I recently had while camping in New Mexico. We wanted to visit the ancient ruins of the Native Americans that built and thrived in this area. The reason why the tribe left this area is still a mystery to archaeologists today. When we were exploring the area, I felt the presence of a male Native American, and I felt him following me around. I asked my guardian angels to help cross him over, and I saw him step into the light in my mind's eye. I thanked my angels and continued on with the day. After this happened, a flock of crows started to caw and follow us back to our campsite. They continued to caw throughout the evening and into the next day when we left. Were the crows a sign that I did something wrong? Was I not supposed to help cross this man over? He was smiling when he went into the light, but after experiencing all the crows making so much noise and following me back, I wasn't sure if I did something. Also, the crows were nowhere to be seen on our first day there. If it was only when I had this experience that we started to see and hear them, did I do something wrong? If you guys could clarify your take on this, I would appreciate it. I don't think it's ever wrong to attempt to cross an earthbound over. I, I really don't because ultimately it's everyone has free will and choice. So all she was doing was asking her angels to open up the light so that this Native American could walk through if he chose. Now he might be there as a guardian of the place and he might have been there just hanging around and she helped him cross over. But in Native American traditions, and if, if anyone's listening out 
and knows more than this than I do, which would be 99% of the people listening, please email me. But what I have learned is that folklore connected to many of the tribes and Native Americans connect the crow with wonderful connotations. There's this beautiful story about how the whole earth was suddenly plunged into freezing temperatures and they needed fire. And so all the animals gathered and they were like, Someone, one of us needs to volunteer to go up to the creator and ask for warmth or fire. And a couple of animals volunteered, but it was deemed they weren't fit for the, for the you know, difficult journey. And finally, Crow volunteered. And at this time, Crow was this beautiful all-white bird and was known for its beautiful singing voice. But they all agreed that Crow could manage the journey. And so Crow goes up to the creator, asks for fire, is granted the gift of fire. And as the bird is flying down with the fire, the fire singes all of its feathers, turning it black. And the smoke burns its voice so that the, the crow can never sing beautifully again at cause. And so for many Native Americans, the crow symbolizes sacrifice uh, for, the, for, the, for the good of the people. And so possibly the crow was a sign that this individual had been in this canyon all these years as a sacrifice for his people to help everyone remember what the Native Americans gave up for our land. Wow. I, I agree. Also, crows are good juju. They're messengers. They come in as messengers. They're also highly, highly intelligent. And I love, you know, if you want to explore crows a little bit, they're fascinating animals because they, they'll have a lookout, they'll re, but they'll remember. And this is a quick story, and I, I know we have a lot more to get through. But someone that I had known casually had like thrown a rock or something at a crow. And I said, Oh, you're in for it now. And, and he said, why? And I said, because that crow is going to know where you, it's going to find you. And it's going to tell the other crows. And this person thought I was a complete Lulu. Two days later, this person got in touch with me and said, how do I make them go away? And I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, there have been crows here in Maine. A lot of people have metal roofs because of the snowfall. And, and he said, there has been, there have been three crows on top of my roof since four o'clock this morning, tapping, tap, tap, tap. They won't go away. I chase them off. They come back. And, and he said, Denise, they're looking at me. They know it's me. And I said, yes, they know it's you. They're smart. So I think, and that's just kind of a fun story, but just that connection with nature, but crows are a beautiful, beautiful messenger. They're also often a, a totem for a lot of people. Um, but just kind of peek around at some interesting lore about crows because they're amazing, amazing birds. Um, that's a little off topic, but kind of a fun story that goes with Definitely it. a fun story. Our next one. Hi, Samantha. I'm asking for your help and thoughts from you and Denise on something that my husband and I experienced last night. We both woke up at approximately 3.30. I had awoken from a dream and I was looking at the front door when all of a sudden I heard a knock on it. That's the only thing I remember from all the little ram random dreams I had that night. I awoke to my husband looking out the front window of our bedroom. I asked if he was okay and why he was looking out the window. He replied he had a, had a bad dream about my son and me and couldn't fall back asleep. He came back in bed and with 10 minutes, we both heard our eight-year-old son talking in his sleep. He said as clear as day, so how long have you been dead for? We both couldn't believe what we just heard. Within 10 minutes, he was talking in his sleep about something completely different. 
My son has always been a sleep talker since a very young age. I'm a very light sleeper and always hear my kids talk in their sleep. And I even know when they've rolled over and switched positions. I've awoken to him in the middle of the night talking and saying things like, don't touch me, stop pinching me, shut up, leave me alone, stop talk talking or yelling, stop it. My son is very smart. He excels in school and in gifted and talented programs. He has always been super sensitive. He reads people's emotions very well. I wonder if, in fact, he does have some type of gift. I asked him this morning, like I do every morning, if he slept well and if he had any dreams. He said he slept fine and had no dreams. Most times he doesn't recall dreaming. I did not ask any more questions. I knew if he had remembered, he would tell me. My question is, how do I know if he's just sleep talking or if there's something more? Being the empath that he is, I wonder if his light has drawn something to him. How can I help him? going to try some crystals in his room and weekly salt baths. Also, I had a reading with Denise this spring and my son was brought up and she senses a man that watches him from out back by our rock wall. And she said he watches him, but that she didn't feel it was anything bad, but that he was just keeping an eye on him. Could this have something to do with it? It's hard because he never remembers his dreams and I want to make sure I do whatever I can to help and protect him. Thank you both for any advice or feelings about what could be happening. Wow. Big Wow. Yeah. And and I did have a son who was, both my sons are very smart. I've shared that, not in a braggy way. They just, genetically, they hit the lottery. And But who was a sleep talker and a sleepwalker? And it's very unsettling as a parent, because you'll just all of a sudden hear clear as a bell. Do any of your girls talk in their sleep? No, but they all remember their dreams pretty vividly. Okay. But same thing, the son would never remember the dreams and would say similar things and would walk up and talk to you in the night and then go back to bed and it would be like, oh, that was kind of creepy. So well, let's, can we break this down? And like, first of all, like the crystals and the weekly salt baths, because that's your category. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of great crystals you can use. I always say with children who are intuitive and empathic, if possible, bring them into a metaphysical or crystal store and ask them to choose a crystal. They will know what is best for them. But if you can't do that or your son just doesn't want to for for some reason, amethyst and howlite and black tourmaline are really good stones for protecting from nightmares or just not wanting to go to sleep. So you could put those underneath between, you know, the mattress and the box spring, for example, if you don't want him touching them. Or you could put him into like a little lucky dream sachet and have him sleep with that underneath his his pillow. I think getting a crystal nightlight, like an amethyst or rose quartz nightlight, can be really helpful for this as well. The weekly salt baths I always recommend for everybody, but especially kids. And you can just pour a cup of Epsom salts, a half cup of sea salt, uh, and any you can add anything else you want to that. Some people add baking soda. Some people will add essential oils. And then just let them soak in that for at least 20 minutes. And that kind of scrubs their aura clean of any stuff they've picked up on throughout the week. You know, I think if you are an intuitive medium and you're born that way, you're just going to have these experiences. So there's, it's not like I can say, oh, well, if you say this magical prayer, it'll never happen again. Because I, I just feel, I can only speak from my experience. And I grew up having stuff like this happen. My children have grown up having things like this happen. What I have always taught my kids is that you are in charge of your space. You are in charge of your boundaries. 
So when one of my kids, for example, had a negative something talking to her in the dream world, she asked me to make it go away. And I said, I will pray with you, sweetie, but you are the one who has to pull on your power. And she said, I'm scared to do that. And I said, don't be scared, honey. You have more power in your loving heart than most people. So call on Archangel Michael, because that's with our faith. Call on Jesus and Mary and say to this thing, you are no longer allowed in my energetic space. You're not allowed to come in my room. You're not allowed to come in my dreams. And I call on Archangel Michael, Christ, and Mother Mary to help me enforce this. Go away forever. And she did that. It was very weird, Denise, because she did that at night. I held her hand in her little bed, and she said that prayer, and I tucked her in. And when we woke up in the morning, her Archangel Michael statue that is next to her bed, the sword was broken off. Oh. But that thing never came back. Hmm. So I would just recommend that she talk to him in power. And, and, and I have to say, she was four and a half years old when we did this. Okay. So you don't have to, you know, well, she doesn't have the words for it. Well, you can help her with the words. But I do believe that these, these old souls that are, that are being born now, they're way wiser than their little four or five years might lead us to believe. And if they're seeing scary stuff or talking to scary stuff, they know it. They know it's scary. They know it's not, oh, a monster under the bed. And it's important for them to be able to talk to you about it. Now, what her son encountered doesn't seem super scary to me. It just seems like uh, someone who's died who's talking to him. Because all he said was, so how long have you been dead? Right. You know, so it might just be something, you know, normal. There are a lot of ghosts. They are everywhere. They really are. Uh, so it, it might not be something negative. But I still, I believe, and this is just my opinion, you need to go where you belong. The, the humans that are living, we belong here in the third dimension on earth. The humans who have passed, they belong in the light. So if you have a ghost, they're not where they belong. They're not supposed to be here with the living. They're, not, you know, they're supposed to be in the light. And so I always say, keep that stuff out, especially for kids. And this, the other part of the thing saying things like, don't touch me, stop pinching me, shut up, leave me alone, and yelling, stop it. A lot of times in dreams, we'll process things that are happening during our day that we didn't get closure on or that left a little imprint or a memory. And a lot of those things sound like a typical elementary school playground. So you have to wonder as a super, yeah. super sensitive, highly intuitive kid, if that's the energy around him in, because I didn't get any negative from that. The other thing is when and I hadn't pre-read this question and I read, oh, I had a reading with Denise this spring. And I thought, uh oh, and then I read it and it's like, I don't remember this, but as I'm rereading it, as we always say, we get out of the way during a reading and let it come through us, not from us. It feels very protective. It feels like this energy is protecting him. And I'm still sticking with that. It feels ancestral. It feels either connected with the land or with that, that family. But I don't get any red flags. And I don't think he's attracting. Because the other thing, and I believe this, is kids shine a different light and they're protected. I think the ancestors yes. protect them. I think that all that is protects them. I think that their guardian angels are on 
full alert all the time in a very different way than as adults. And maybe that's my bias, but I don't think that little boy is pulling anything negative in. No. And it sounds like she's got the right attitude. She asked him if he remembered his dream. He said, no, she didn't push it. The worst thing I think parents can do is if they're like, oh my God, I heard you had a nightmare and you were talking to something that is so scary. Are you okay? Right. You know, because kids take our cues from us and so that would freak them out. So it, it sounds like she's, she's doing all that she should be doing. Okay, our next one says, I am from Portugal and in my mid-30s. I've spent the last five years abroad in England where I was able to grow personally and professionally. I first moved there because I always felt that something was missing in my home country. I felt good in a strange country, able to build up from scratch. In the last year, I've been going through a spiritual awakening and ended up leaving a job, a long-term relationship, the dream of having it all sorted out like other women my age, and I left England. I needed time to recover and go through the grief and pain that involves awakening to a new way of being. After some months, I finally feel that I can go back, get a job, but I don't know in which country, Portugal or England. I went to a medium and tarot reader to help me decide and get out of my head. My spirit guide said they wanted me to stay in Portugal instead of running away and going abroad again. The reader initially told me she saw me abroad, but the cards told me to stay in Portugal for now. I felt disappointed and sad because I realized that I really feel unhappy in Portugal. Nothing brings me happiness here, and I feel stuck and in limbo. I feel that I belong to the world, and I want to live abroad and open my horizons. Is it possible that your spirit guides might send you in a different direction than what your gut tells you? Should I always follow my heart, even if it goes against my spirit guide's advice? During my spiritual awakening, I felt less alone because of you and your podcast. I cannot thank you enough for being a beacon of light for those like me that are still trying to make sense of all this new world of spirit. Well, I think that is such a good question, and I want to answer this in two ways. One, I want to say, always follow your heart, your gut, and your feelings, because that's never going to lead you astray. Two, whenever you go to a reader, you have to realize that all the information your guides are giving to him or her have to go through his or her bias, energy that day. She might have been having a great day, a not-so-great day, and there's a chance she could have misinterpreted what the cards were saying. And so that's why it's nice to go to a reader to have things validated and to give you insight. But ultimately, you have to always do what your heart says. And, you know, there's an exercise that kind of proves this point of where I'm going. If you, like, let's say you have a friend who's like, I don't know, should I take job A or job B? It might sound trivial, but you can always flip a coin and say, all right, if it's heads up, you should take job A. If it's tails up, take job B. And you flip the coin and you, you know, cover your hand when it lands and you say to your friend, what do you want it to be, tails or heads? And sometimes that's a good way of making a decision. And I'm wondering, in a way, if her guides gave this reader that information to stay in Portugal almost as a reverse uh, psychology thing of making her realize she does not need to be there anymore. I agree, and I agree with the coin cost analogy as well, because what you're feeling when the coin is in the air, because you generally want it to go one way or the other. You don't usually get to a coin toss if you're completely ambivalent about the outcome. Right. 
the other thing is that really, really hit me hard empathically is her line, I felt disappointed and sad because I realized that I really feel unhappy in Portugal. Nothing brings me happiness and I feel stuck here in limbo. I feel like that's her inner guidance system saying, okay, if you're not happy, then it's time to switch some stuff up. Because, and, and, and we say this over and over, and I say this before any intuitive reading or divination, always subject to change and free will. And if you go to someone and it doesn't resonate with you, either say that to the person doing the reading, and I, I think you and I do the same thing, is I will say to someone, if this doesn't make sense or doesn't resonate, tell me, and I'll go at it from a different direction. Because exactly what you just said, we're just the conduit, we're the messenger, but we're not, we're not their higher self. We're not yeah. their connection to their spirit guide. We're the messenger. And I think if she's feeling so, so strongly about being unhappy and being in limbo, which kind of mirrors what a lot of people are going through right now, my gut feeling is honor that and follow your heart. Because you can always come back to Portugal. I don't feel like she's burning bridges with these decisions. Exactly. And, you know, you just have to take everything that, that an intuitive says to you with a grain of salt. Denise, I have heard from three clients this week and now this listener of readers saying awful things. Like one, not one okay. woman, not okay. One woman emailed me. She said she went to an intuitive to ask if her work would ever be known. And the intuitive looked at her point blank and said, no, you will never be famous. What? That person's right to say that she, that's not her information. No. That's just why. No. Nobody, nobody, nobody knows the future. Nobody, not even our loved ones in heaven. Here's the analogy I always use when I'm trying to describe this when predicting the future. Pretend you're in a little tiny Prius and you're behind a giant pickup truck well jacked up way up high, and you're stuck in traffic. You've been stuck in traffic for an hour. You have no idea why you're stuck in traffic. Is it a car accident? Is it a roadblock? Construction? What's going on? You don't know. Your loved ones in heaven, your guides, your intuitive reader, is like the driver of that jacked up truck in front of you. They can see a little bit further down the road. So they can see, oh, this is a roadblock. This is construction. They can't tell is a motorcycle going to come racing up in the emergency lane and cause an accident further delaying you? Or is the construction worker going to suddenly decide, hell with it, I'm done for the day, remove all the orange cones and traffic is going to clear up that second? They don't know that. I don't know that. You don't know that. The future is malleable. It has not happened yet. So the only thing an intuitive can help you with in readings is looking at patterns, potentials, and where all this energy is leading you now if you don't change a darn thing. Right. And I want to add to that in that if, if you're going to a reader, because sometimes when I'm doing an intuitive reading, I will clearly see a calendar page or an event that's significant. And I will ask a person is, I'm just going to use this randomly, is the month of October significant for birthday and anniversary or passing? And sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes they'll say no. So that's more on a mediumistic thing. But it also is an indicator of a timeline. And what I'll generally say is it feels like there's a potential for things to shift around then, or there's a change coming up, or the opportunity is going to... Pres but it's never definitive. It no, is never it's a potential. It's a good feeling or a warning feeling. Right. And I've had people... Uh, so many, it's funny you said lately, because I've had a few people lately say, tell me the bad stuff too. I don't just want to hear the good stuff. 
And I don't think, I, I mean, if something was really in my face that was going to be of danger to someone, then that would be my job to, to gently bring that into the conversation. But as far as any readers that you go to that are making it fear-based or planting that seed, run away. Get away from that. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. And a lot of readers will use negativity and fear just to keep you coming back. Right, which is not okay. Not it's okay. wrong. It's morally and ethically wrong. It's wrong on every level. So to this dear listener, follow your heart. Go back to England. Go explore Australia. Go to Asia. Go everywhere you want to go and follow your heart and your feelings. Doesn't that sound fun? That does sound fun. <laughs> Here's our next one. I'm trying to make this brief, but it's sort of convoluted, so my apologies in advance. So I'd hit a rough patch in my life and moved back in with my parents and stayed in my sister's old room. Upon moving in, I found myself having some anxiety, which I attributed to the move and the circumstances that brought me there. Fast forward some years, and I moved in from my parents to my sister's place. In her home, my anxiety was heightened to a point where when I would lay down to sleep, I just waited for my heart to clench and my mind to start racing. My sister can be a narcissist, so I attribute it to my current circumstances. The difference now is that I'm aware that I am picking up on her. Strange thoughts were popping into my head, and when I would see her, she would voice them. The anxious thoughts haunting me at night were very linear sequential, and my response to daytime challenges that normally would have rolled off me are defensive and self-conscious. One day I got a new bed and everything lightened up dramatically. I recognized that all the time I had been sleeping all this time I'd been sleeping in her old bed. When I moved into my parents' place, I moved into her bed. When I moved in with her, I brought it with me. I would love for this to be the end of my story, but while my sleeping life took a dramatic turn for the better, my waking life still seems to maintain some of her less desirable personality traits. I find myself sweating the small stuff and holding petty grudges, being easily irritated and assuming the worst of people more often than I care to admit. It's been a while since I felt like me and I'm sort of ashamed of this new person I've become. I've done saging, clearings, cord cuttings and meditation fairly regularly, but on an energetic level, I feel like there is some dirt on me that I can't wash off. Does this make any sense to you? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I just want to feel like me again. Thank you for your podcast, lady. It does my heart so much good, and I know so many of us feel this way. Wow. I agree. And it's interesting. When we had Jean Hayner on the show, she brought up that uh, point as well of don't try to move someone else into an old bed because that holds your energy. And I think beds hold a lot of very much so. I think the fact that being in the environment with people that are narcissistic, it can cling on to us, impact our attitude in ways that we may not be comfortable with. She's been slimed. (laughs) And I think too, when we are back with our family of origin, sometimes those old tapes can get triggered. And so I would just ask her to be patient with herself and to really intensely practice self-care. So take a lot of salt baths, get some energy work on yourself. You know, maybe she could see a cranial sacral therapist or get a massage or go to a Reiki practitioner. She can journal some of this out as well. Talk to a therapist. I also, when I get in those feelings of like, ugh, 
one of the things that gets me out of them is practicing spiritual tithing where you just anonymously give back to others in a way that can make them feel good. So, you know, you can drop off food at a food bank or you could just mail $10 to someone anonymously and say, I hope this makes your day bright. Everything's getting better. She could make a donation to a charity, but just any type of giving back often starts to switch that energy within me. And also praying, asking for guidance and help to get out of that funky feeling, it really does work. It really, really does. Even if you don't like praying, you can just take a bracelet or a rosary beads or mantra beads and just say a positive affirmation on each bead as you go around and around your, your wrist or the, or the beads that you're working with. But intentionally going through your day with the idea that you are going to de-slime yourself and shift this energy is really, really important. And, and please keep in mind, we just did a, a pretty intense show on cord cutting on, on the Psychic Teachers podcast that I host with Deb. When you do a cord cutting with someone, especially someone you have a lot of energy with, like a sister you've known your whole life, one cord cutting meditation isn't going to do it. You might have to do it a couple of times. And if you're trying to cut cords to someone who's bugging you, you also have to cut cords to aspects of yourself that are triggered by that. So I, I'd recommend she look more into cord cutting and try it again as well. And I don't know why this just popped into my head, but I just got a really strong nudge that get outside, get out in nature, let the wind wash this off of you, get it out of your auric field. If you're by the ocean, so much the better. You know, that's like stepping into a giant salt lamp with the ionic energy that you get when you're by the coast. But if you're anywhere, even if it's a park in a city, get outside and get some fresh air circulating around you. And I don't know why that popped in, but it felt really important. Excellent advice. Okay, our next question says, Hello, Samantha and Denise. As empaths, we approach the world with such profound compassion and openness to connection. It's hard for us to believe that people can be so calculated in their ruthlessness and deviousness within a professional setting. I find that for me, it's been a challenge to pick up on the underhanded attempts of manipulation that come up with office politics. I'm such a direct and truthful person, it's hard for me to pick up on passive-aggressive communication. So in my personal life, I don't engage with this type of behavior. Within a work setting, I don't have much control over who I must interact with in order to make a living in an ideal world. I would work in an office with only empaths, but unfortunately, that is not the case. What is your advice for empaths to succeed in careers within corporate settings despite office politics? Should we play the game even though it is the exact opposite of our inherent nature? I've done protection techniques such as visualizing protective spiritual barriers around me, kept my protection crystals at work, and done my best to rise above the drama, but in the end, I've seen the most conniving people be the ones to get the promotion, survive the layoffs, and obtain the most loyalty from their superiors. I am in my early 30s and I've changed jobs constantly due to hitting a wall of exhaustion because of office politics. I find I become so drained I start getting sick frequently and have to leave. I need help desperately if I plan to survive my next job. Thank you for taking time to address my question. I love your Community Connection episodes. Well, Denise, this is a hard one for me to answer because ever since I entered the workforce, my goal has always been to get out of the workforce. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I can't tell you how much I love working from home for myself because of that. So I will try to give uh, suggestions that help me when I was in work environments like this. I would I documented everything first of all. So I have had ruthless, difficult, conniving bosses. And I would document everything. I would write down time and dates of things that were said. I would print out and save emails and text exchanges. And when I had enough, I would go to HR. And many, many times that actually did help. I do think that people are getting more cued in to what negative energy like this in a workplace does. So that's something I would suggest she do is document this conniving stuff as much as you can. I also recommend that you take breaks from this. So when you come home, as much as possible, leave this behind you. Take off your shoes at the door. Take a shower at night instead of in the morning so that when you get home, you're washing all of that off of you. Watch a silly sitcom to just break that energy. Set boundaries. If you do have coworkers texting you or emailing you at night, hey, did you see that email I sent? We need to discuss this first thing in the morning. If possible, set boundaries with that and just say in the morning, oh, I'm so sorry. I have a habit of turning my phone off the minute I walk in the door so I can unplug and, re and, and unwind and try to give yourself breaks from that toxic energy. If you are, it sounds like she's finding this no matter what job she's going to because you know, initially I would suggest it looks like you're in a really yucky environment and you might want to look for a different job. But it sounds like she's finding it wherever she goes. If that's the case, there might be a pattern here that you need to look at in yourself. Like I think I've shared before how I recognized a pattern in my career where I kept having mean female bosses. And I realized it was an invitation from the universe for me to look at some of my negative interactions with my um, dominant mother who was just very you know you will wear your hair this way you will dress this way type of thinking once I worked on that and did some inner child work set some really good boundaries with my mom learned to interact with her in a way that was healthy for me suddenly my one of my best friends was promoted to be my boss it was like magic the way it shifted and so I would invite her to look at patterns what is the big stressor with these negative people is it competition? Is it the gossip? And, and what about that is striking fear in you? And how can you correlate this to any childhood issues you might be still carrying with you? How about you, Denise? Okay, two things. I think one of the things I did when I, right before I left, my, I would change my clothes when I got home. And it, it was like a trigger to my, okay, now I can go walk the dogs and leave that behind me. I like, so when you said, take your shoes off or take a shower, do those things, make a physical change with yourself when you leave. Also as an empath, this person has my absolute empathy and compassion because I was in that situation, not repeatedly, but in, in the last job that I was in. And I watched someone who did absolutely nothing, get accolades, get promotions, get written up in local newspapers, get interviewed on state news. And it was just like, oh, this person, you know, is the second coming, so amazing, all these things. And, but I knew none of that was true. And morally, it was really, really hard to be in that environment. Her question, should we play the game, even though it's the opposite of our inherent nature? Do you need this job? 
Do you need to put food on the table? Do you need to pay your bills? I mean, that's that logical, very grounded side. Sometimes we, as anyone on the planet, we have to do things we don't like to do to get to, it's a means to an end. It, it, but it, since it's a pattern, I agree with you. What is it in you that you keep putting yourself in these situations? Do you need to look at another type of work? Is there a different type of company? Would you be happier if, if the company that you worked with was something that you felt so passionately about that it would balance it out? And I don't have an answer to any of those questions or just what's, what's coming into my mind. I also feel, though, that as sensitive people, playing the game, sometimes it is a game. And I don't mean that in a manipulative or controlling way. I mean, one of the things that got me through, and this is embarrassing to say out loud, is I always carry around a notepad. I have for, for hundreds, of, I just like to jot things down as they come to mind. So I always have it in my bag or in my, I always have paper and a, and a pen with me. And I would sit in meetings and I would just very calmly write the most it would peel paint off the wall, some of the things that I wrote down, but I would smile and nod and do what I needed to do because I could, but it, it was a vent. It was a way to get that energy out and not hold it personally. So it might be when you get home, you, you go for a run or you go for a walk or you work out or you write or any of those tools so that you're not owning that negative stuff. But my gut feeling is if it keeps showing up is make some conscious choices with yourself. What do I need to do to change this so that I can find joy in my work environment? Yes. And one last thing I'd say is find a like-minded friend at work if possible. Yes. You know, and it might be hard to see like, oh, who's like me, but you can tell. I remember I was at a committee meeting once at the community college and the, the dean was like, okay, so we have more students in this one class failing than passing. So what can we do to get more of them to succeed? And the, the ideas that were thrown out were just so silly. Like, well, we should assign less homework and less papers and we should take Shakespeare off the table. And it was like, I was like, why don't we just borrow the curriculum kindergarten, you know, and see if that'll work. I mean, what do you want us to do? Give them all A's? And I was just joking. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone looked at me horrified but one person laughed and I looked and I said, that's my new friend. <laughs> so after the meeting, I went over and introduced myself and we're still friends today. But, you know, so sometimes just kind of, if, if everyone's like intense and competitive and you throw in a ridiculous joke, look at who laughs, look at who makes eye contact, look at who nods. That could be a cue that that's, that's a potential friend for you to make. And, and that'll at least remind you that you have allies even in this difficult environment. Excellent advice. Okay, I'm going to read our next question. I discovered your podcast after searching around for empath material. I'm trying to find out more about myself and how I can develop tools and strategies to help me heal and defend myself from the world. I've been training in and using Reiki. This has led to lots of reflection, meditation, and healing on my part, which is good. I listened to your episode on Narcissist. I married one once, now divorced, and the experience nearly killed me. The relationship with her mother put our eldest daughter in therapy after she was kicked out of the home at age 12 by the mother. I also took note of the recent episode on not being enough. Something that rang in my head was the potential of impressing this behavior in childhood from parental responses to the child. 
This made me think of my own parents and my own imposter syndrome and feelings of never being enough. Even though I am a postgraduate, educated, Reiki 2 certified, a good parent, and all the rest. My mother. Every time there is a comment about my actions, it is always, oh, but you should have done X, Y, Z, or why didn't you, and so on, accompanied by the usual tutting and mother-knows-best attitude. This has not helped as my children and I live with my parents in their home here in the UK. A long story involving grandchildren being kicked out of the home, me having to return to the country after living abroad with my new wife, and returning having difficulty finding full-time work in my field that pays the bills. This is really a digression in me beating around the, the question that might spur a podcast topic or discussion. How does one heal or help oneself manage the negative, the negative parenting effects that manifest in imposter syndrome and always being criticized? I doubt myself to the extent that I barely do anything, and if I do, it is with anger and spite. All a bit much, really. I do apologize. I don't for a second believe that tackling the parent head-on with counter-criticism will amount to anything but patronizing blowbacks and belittling of my points and attitude. All because they are the adults and it is their house. Shocking. I topic for discussion or just spam for your inbox. You decide. Thank you for reading this and doing the podcast. I'll keep listening regardless. Well, I just first want to say I have been working all summer on trying to find a really great guest to continue our narcissist series and just a focus on adult children of narcissistic parents. Each really awesome writer that I love and admire has said thanks but no thanks, uh, which is always difficult to hear, but I'm going to keep trying. And if I can't find a therapist, you know, like even Dr. Carter was like, can we have a phone call before I come on your show? Like enlightened empaths, are we going to be discussing intuition? You know, so a lot of, a lot of these traditional mainstream therapists are like, wait, what am I getting myself into? But I am trying to get an authority on there. And, and if I can't, well, Denise, we're just going to do the show our own damn selves because God knows we have experience. <laughs> Some might say, yes. Some might say, um, <laughs> So I, I, I want to point out a couple of things in this question. First of all, this listener was raised by a narcissistic mother and then married a narcissist. That is so common. So try not to judge yourself for making that decision because many, many times, especially if you read Carl Jung, it's our subconscious that rules our life. And so if you feel comfortable in a situation with a narcissist, I, I don't mean consciously, I mean, your subconscious mind is like, oh, that's normal. That's what I grew up with. That's what I know. You're going to be drawn to narcissists because it's your, it's your subconscious comfort zone until you recognize that and break it. And so just try to be as loving and kind and gentle with yourself as you can as you work on breaking free from these patterns. I think the Reiki is wonderful. I also think doing whatever you can, and I'm sure you already are, working to move out of that house and get away and get distance from your parents as much as possible is going to be really, really helpful. Because as you probably heard from our prior listener's question, living with a narcissist is like being slimed every day, and it can be hard to break free from that funky, negative, critical energy. So I... 
I can't say enough about therapy. Working with a therapist has helped me a lot get through the issues I had with my narcissistic parent. Having a safe place, a person to cheer me on and validate me and say, okay, here's what this means, here's what that means. Here are some options you can do with this or that. All of that is incredibly helpful. So I would recommend therapy if you can um, get in with a really good one that, that you trust and resonate with. But I just think that it's, it's an ongoing process. What I have learned as an adult child of a narcissistic parent is that it is something that I have to deal with differently in each decade and stage of my life. So in my young 20s, I had to deal with it from, oh my gosh, I'm getting married and having a family and my mom's not talking to me because she didn't like the venue I chose. And then when I became a mom, it was like, oh, I don't have a mom here to help me with what do I do when this happens or that happens. So, so at every stage, it's almost like you're grieving it at a different level. And so I just don't want you to ever think there's going to come a time when you're like, whew, check that off my list. Never have to worry about that again. I really do look at having a narcissistic parent like grief. And if you lose someone that you love, there's never a time where you're going to wake up and go, oh, I'm so glad I don't miss them anymore. It's something you carry with you the rest of your life. And like luggage, you just have to learn a better way to carry it. And I, I think the best way to do that is through therapy, but I also think self-love is a really good way to do that as well. That's something I can't answer in a quick question because that's a lifetime journey learning to love yourself. But there are some little things you can do. Instead of doing a gratitude journal, for example, each night, write down three things you did that day that you're really proud of yourself for. In short, learn to parent yourself. Learn to celebrate your, your accomplishments, however small, however big. Make a point of celebrating you, mothering, fathering you, and giving yourself the things you didn't have then and that in many ways you still don't have now. And I think through that focus on loving yourself and recognizing those subconscious triggers in tandem with a helpful supportive therapist, there really is a light at the end of that tunnel. Don't you agree? I agree. You covered that beautifully. Very, very nice. Well, thank you. But yes, we are working on doing a whole episode on that because there's so much more I can say about that. We hope that you all have enjoyed listening to these questions and stories. And Denise and I just ask a lot of people writing us, we're really sharing some intimate things from their heart. And I, I know you agree with me, Denise. I just ask that everyone listening, keep these listeners in your hearts and prayers tonight as you fall asleep. Because every bit of light that we send out to other people really does have an impact and does help people. So don't remember, don't forget, as you are saying your prayers for yourself and your family, to include other people as well, because gosh knows prayer works. Don't forget as well that Denise and I are offering our advanced mediumship webinar in October. If you want information and details on that, you can go to my website or Denise's, samanthafay.com or thegratefulmessenger.com. And finally, iTunes is doing weird stuff with their categorizing of podcasts. So if you guys are liking our show, first of all, thank you. A second of all, if you could take a moment in your day this week to leave us a review, it helps us to pop up more for other people to find us so we can continue to grow our community.
And if you'd like to share a story or a question for our next Community Connections, you can email us, enlightenedempaths at gmail.com, or you can send us a message on Facebook. You can find us there on Enlightened Empaths. We thank you so much, as always, for listening. We hope you have a beautiful week filled with lots of great, happy, wonderful, synchronistic experiences. Don't forget, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.